And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm delighted to welcome back uh, into the studios one of my faculty colleagues at Carthage, Dr. Wayne Thompson, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice. And uh, Professor Thompson is a great person to, to, whom to, to which to turn uh, when one wants to tackle some of the most vexing and complicated questions about life in America in uh, 2017, uh, and in particular uh, in, in, in his discipline of, of sociology, uh, Professor Thompson has done a lot of study in terms of what kind of makeup we are seeing in our, in our population in terms of uh, racial divides, ethnic divides, economic divides. We feel like a much more divided country than we ever were before. And uh, are we more divided? And if so, along what lines? And what is driving that, that sense of, of division among us? And of course, in particular, uh, in light of recent events, we want to talk about what feels like a resurgence of, of racism in our country. Is that really there? Uh, are numbers surging? Uh, or is it just that there is sort of a new prominence uh, to, to white supremacists and, and neo-Nazis? Are they emboldened for one reason or another and, and allowing themselves to be much more visible uh, in, our, in our public life? What's going on here? And uh, it's easy to jump to uh, easy, <laughs> easy pat answers and, and conclusions. And uh, Professor Thompson, I know, is going to caution us to resist the urge to do that and to try to look at, at good hard data and, uh, and draw our conclusions uh, very carefully and thoughtfully. So I'm excited about the next few minutes very, very much. And by the way, we should mention parenthetically that uh, Professor Thompson is not only a frequent guest to this program, but a very frequent guest on especially Joy Cardine's program for the statewide Wisconsin Public Radio Network. Professor Wayne Thompson, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Always a pleasure to be here with you and the listeners on The Morning Show. So glad that uh, that you can be here. I want to begin with a, a question that's somewhat overarching. It has to do with your discipline and the work of sociologists. Uh, when it comes to something very specific like racism, who are the racists in our country and what are they like? I mean, what what gener- generalities can be drawn about who they are, where they live, and so on? How difficult is it to study something like racism if we're talking about something which involves, I should think, at least to some extent, a a bit of self-identification? And racism seems like the kind of thing that uh, at least some racists do not probably fully recognize in themselves. In other words, there are probably plenty of people walking around who, in fact, are much more racist than they would ever admit to somebody else or even to themselves. What sort of difficulty does that pose to somebody like you? Well, for the discipline of sociology has has focused on the study of race relations, ethnicity certainly, ethnic and racial identity, uh, issues having to do with identity certainly uh, since the inception of sociology in the mid-19th century. One of the problems with race is trying to define what it is, and then uh, racism also very difficult. Is there a shifting sands here in terms of uh, how race is understood, how racism is understood? 
it's in our popular culture, nobody likes being called a racist. It's very, very difficult. But I think with the uh, kind of current configuration that we're in culturally and socially, it has become uh, uh, it's become necessary to speak about race, uh, especially for the dominant group, which of course are those persons who perceive themselves and are perceived by others as white. It, that is the dominant group uh, economically, socially, culturally. Uh, it has become necessary to talk about race in coded, almost cryptic terms. And so having honest, open discussions about race has become very much more complicated now. When I was uh, growing up in the 1960s in a working-class family in the Midwest, uh, racism and race were much more directly spoken about. Not so anymore. So race has become a topic people want to avoid. Nobody likes to be called racist. In Europe, historically, race was defined in terms of uh, bloodlines, um, thus the neo-Nazi chant about blood and soil, right? So blood would really refer to kinship. Race was defined in terms of kinship for thousands of years in Europe in terms of who you were related to. Thus, Jews could be seen as a race. The boundaries of the so-called races are set differently in different cultures. In South Africa, during apartheid, race was uh, the racial categories were set as they always are by social agreement, but they were set differently than in traditional Europe, where uh, those of so-called mixed race even had a set aside part of parliament in mm. South Africa, uh, and those were a category called colored, right. And then black was actually a separate category. So the boundaries of the so-called races uh, vary from culture to culture and vary within culture across time. And don't always have all that much to do with pigment of skin, for instance. Well, no, I mean, they, they don't. I mean, sometimes, it but can. sometimes not. In our culture in the United States, in North America, races are largely defined by skin color, but also overlapping with ethnicity, which is generally seen as kind of national identity, national origin. Uh, so skin color is prominent uh, in defining race in the United States, not necessarily prominent in every part of the globe. Racism is also kind of a slippery thing, difficult to understand. The common conception of racism uh, in our culture is very individualistic. It's seen as what sociologists might you know, segment off as bigotry or prejudice. Whereas social scientists tend to see racism as a systemic phenomenon having to do with control over uh, institutions and uh, also cultural influence, uh, so more sociologically. When we talk about race and racism then, that's why it's so hard at the Thanksgiving table to have such a discussion. Uh, it's We're talking about different things, often talking past each other. Mm. And and so sometimes we're talking about what a given person has in his or her heart or mind, and sometimes we're talking about matters of, of policy, and sometimes not even something quite as clear as policy, but systemic racism that can operate in, in, in many cases sort of um, beneath the surface. And unintentionally even. If we look, for instance, at school funding formulas, in the poorest districts of, um, to take Chicago as an example, in the poorest districts of the Chicago me metro area, 
uh, in the inner city, the central city of Chicago, funding per pupil is approximately half of what it is out in the whiter suburbs, the more affluent suburbs. Is that intentional? Uh, it may have historical precedents that were uh, that had to do with residential segregation because we fund schools residentially. You know who you go to school near where you live, but the intentionality is a variable, right? So racism, institutional racism, can crank along generation after generation, and not necessarily be an intentional um, a set of institutional arrangements. Even at the individual level, people are often unaware of their prejudices. We now use the term implicit bias to, uh, to uh, you know, look at that phenomenon where people are not always aware of their hostility or sense of separation, uh, distancing from other races. Hmm. I had a really interesting experience recently on Facebook. I've had a lot of interesting experiences on Facebook recently, but... One in particular really stands out to me, and this was a case where I was engaging with a fairly conservative Facebook friend and with some of their friends who would not be, so they're like friends of friends, I guess you could say, but, uh, and I don't remember if this was before or after Charlottesville, uh, Charlotte, but uh, one gentleman who weighed in basically was was trying to say that he himself was not racist. But he was trying to also be honest about some of his feelings. And, you know, am, am I unhappy about this? You bet I am. But, but am I going to do this? No, I'm not. And, and so on. I mean, you know, basically trying to distance himself from those on the, on the, uh, on, on the fringe, uh, engaging in, in violent or otherwise really overtly intimidating uh, action. But at one point in this kind of long list where he was trying to spell out what he thought and what he felt, he said, Am I unhappy that that white males are now a minority in this country? You bet I am. And and I thought that was it was a really interesting moment of disarming honesty where he's saying he's he's trying to be honest about what probably a, a, a lot of certainly not all but a lot of white males are feeling that once upon a time we we meaning you and me and other white males we really were numerically dominant uh, and dominant in other ways, in a way that we no longer are, at least numerically. And and this gentleman is really bothered by that, but is at least honest enough to say that. And you kind of wonder if, in just the act of saying that, if maybe that's going to be a moment where he's going to maybe start to examine, well, why do I think that? Why why is that an important thing to share Uh and what other feelings are sort of linked to that sense of uneasiness that he has about that. Yeah, that self-awareness is what anthropologists call a reflexive moment. That's where you look at yourself and try to understand where you sit in a larger in a larger scheme of things, right? In a larger framework. And reflexivity often is very difficult around issues of race because it involves uh concerns about privilege and uh disprivilege for uh, for others and but this feeling you're talking about it is um, uh, sometimes called cultural resentment that a dominant group may feel perceive that they are losing influence in small town and rural America especially among the white working class non-college educated to kind of pinpoint some of the demographics um, there is a general feeling of loss and mourning 
a, a sense of lost grandeur. And the scapegoating ensues from there. Who's, to, who's responsible? Who has caused this? Many social scientists would point to deindustrialization as the, the reason for economic decline in the white working class and increasing credentialization uh, with uh, a need for higher degrees, uh, higher level of education that did not characterize older, white, small-town rural Americans. So there's this feeling pervasively uh, in small-town and rural America uh, among whites of a feeling of being left behind, a feeling that the world is changing and that social and cultural pluralism have resulted in a loss uh, of uh, of stature, a loss of resources, a loss of cultural prominence. And uh, that does overlap into the religious world, which is where most of my research is. And so I see uh, some studies, one study of uh, rural Iowa um, sermons uh, noted that the themes of of uh, the really the cross and the resurrection, okay, which are central to Christianity. But those themes have been being used in sermons more frequently in recent times because in many ways it speaks to these cultural anxieties about loss of status uh, for the people who are, in a sense, left behind or mm. feel left behind. Right. And I guess one of the questions then, and, and I'm not sure how much this is a question for you and me to explore, but the question is, uh, is, is there reality in, in that feeling of, in fact, are they left behind or, in fact, are they suffering loss? I mean, is this, is this more about misunderstanding the moment? Uh, is this about misplacing blame? Uh, I mean, I, I mean, another way to ask it is there is there a kernel of truth at least to this feeling that that many of these people, particularly in rural America, are feeling right now? Well, sure, there is a um, there is a reality behind the perceptions. Keep in mind, though, that the that if people define events as real, they are real in their consequences. A famous maxim from Intro to Social that we always teach Intro to Sociology that is that. We live in our narrative worlds uh, and bubbles in our social networks, and if there's a perception, then oftentimes that perception gains currency in reality. On an objective ground, you can see that there has been uh, a growing inequality in the United States, and that has affected um, the working-class whites, those without college degrees, uh, older, rural, small towns. So um, it... It is more general than that. The decline is more general than that. But what has happened is that as the profits, corporate profits have grown and the economy has grown and the stock market's going gangbusters, there are many people who have been left out of that. And whites uh, often attach blame for that to the, uh, to the rise of social and cultural pluralism, which then they resent and especially as regards race. The notion is that the loss of white people is due to the unfair and unearned gains of people of color uh, who have advanced unfairly because of their benefactor, the federal government. So Mm. the federal government is often demonized as having uh, 
having brought that on. And in fact, studies of uh, attitudes about affirmative action really reflect this. There's very low support for affirmative action. uh, And you see, many whites will admit that there is a problem with racism in this country, at least privately. But when we get to practical solutions, they they kind of ditch or bail. Uh, People don't want to have to give up their position on the ladder, thinking that others might be gaining on them. In uh, recent surveys dating back to 2006 through 2014, uh, the percent that oppose or strongly oppose affirmative action for uh, African Americans, uh, 87% of whites oppose it, and even a third of blacks. But there's a huge racial divide in that perception. And that's 87% of all whites? Of all white adults 18 and over. Wow. And 87% when w- strongly oppose or oppose affirmative action. And, and when was this? Well, 2006 through 2014. I, I actually crunched the numbers just for the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, using the surveys. I'm a quantitative sociologist, so I went and looked in the surveys myself. 87% of whites oppose or strongly oppose affirmative action. But there's an education divide. Among those with a high school diploma, among whites with a high school diploma, 89% oppose affirmative action for blacks. Among those with an advanced uh, graduate degree or professional degree, 68%. So even there, there is a majority, but education makes a difference. Hmm. Interesting. And of course, affirmative action is, is, is in and of itself a very complicated topic because we're talking about... Uh, let's say, an, an imperfect tool to try to address a very complicated problem, but nevertheless a, an imperfect tool that many would argue has made a, a very significant difference for the better. Created and, a black middle class. I mean, what's the value to our society of a black and now Latino middle class? On the other hand, affirmative action in recent years has really gone away, but that's not the perception many whites have. Many whites, uh, especially those who are more in the sort of, you know, resentment uh, uh, side of this equation uh, do perceive affirmative action as pervasive. They perceive it as a matter of quotas and so on. Uh, So in a way, it's kind of shadow boxing with a boogeyman that has, in many ways, has disappeared over recent years through Supreme Court decisions and through just this, it's unpopular to have affirmative action. On the other hand, the social scientists and disadvantaged uh, advocates for disadvantaged um, folks argue, well, if there's a general problem here, how, why is it that whites seem to oppose any practical solution to it? Affirmative action is an imprecise tool. But all it ever really was was a creating uh, an attempt to create a larger pool of candidates for jobs, uh, for uh, college admission slots. Well, so there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. But if folks don't like affirmative action, what do they propose would right. close the gap? And there seems to be nothing that closes the gap. And in fact, for all Americans, the inequality gap is growing between those at the very top and everybody else. That sets in motion a process of looking for the scapegoat, which I think has led to a kind of more a public face, a resurgence and a, an immediacy and urgency that many white working class folks feel that they're slipping the minorities are gaining, and they're very active in the political arena to, to stop this process. Of course, what's really happening is a huge transfer of wealth to the very top of the society 
that is driving a lot of this resentment. There's also a cultural dimension to that, and that is uh, whites feeling a loss of cultural uh, of cultural influence. So it's not only about money and wealth. Mm. I think it's interesting uh, to think about the the two words um, white privilege, because I, I sometimes think uh, that that is. Uh, a real buzzword for maybe some of the whites that we are talking about. And I'm going to confess to a terrible generalization of which I'm guilty, but I'm going to be honest about it and say that, you know, if somebody says white supremacist to me or skinhead or whatever, I picture uh, a poor white male living in a trailer in rural Arkansas. I mean, that's what immediately comes to mind. I don't think of a professional living in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin, for instance, and 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 I realize that is its own kind of bigotry. That that's to me that's the the face, uh, the visceral sort of image I create in my mind when I hear hear the word skinhead or wh- white supremacist. That being said, to whatever extent that is a, a significant part of that population, uh, I always wonder what, what someone like that would would feel. In, in hearing the term white white privilege, when somebody finds themselves, uh, whether of their own doing or poor choices or, or, or for reasons very much beyond their control, but find themselves uh, in a place economically and socially and otherwise that, that uh, very few people would envy and yet have attached to them that, that, they, that they somehow possess white privilege. Yes, uh, many and, whites don't feel privileged. Exactly. That, my uh, students will tell me that. The research reflects that many whites will, will respond to the concept of white privilege by saying, well, I don't feel privileged. I can't make the bills. I, I uh, can't afford to send my kids to private schools. Uh, I can't uh, get my car fixed, and I can't make my credit card bill. So where's the privilege? Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, to which case, you know, social science comes, you know, galloping in and <laughs> oh, good, and will point out that uh, you know there, there's a subjective element to this, of course. Sure. And uh, and thus, whites, uh, when they say that they don't feel privileged, I think we need to take them seriously and and understand that. On the other hand, uh, there are objective elements to it uh, as well as the subjective. So for imagine this, uh, white privilege is often a kind of, there's a lot of denial around it, but there's also a kind of invisibility to it as well. So to unpack the knapsack of white privilege a little bit and see what the elements might be in there. Uh, imagine, you know, some of the privileges of race. So for instance, as a white person, when I went to college, uh, and I attended Carthage College in 1973, I started college there. And I didn't even think about it, but I had the privilege, if you can see it as privilege, of going into classes and having a reasonable expectation that most of the professors are going to look like me, and not only white, but also male, hmm. okay? And, um, and in many cases, Lutheran at that time, you know. So these were kind of invisible, taken for granted. White privilege often is, uh, and, and privilege is often taken for granted. Uh, imagine what it's like, on the other hand, for a person of person of color. You go into the mini mart in the morning, and the attendant may give you, may, let's say, a person maybe of South Asian or some other uh, uh, descendants ancestry, and they maybe give you a little lip that morning. So you walk out of the mini mart thinking, "Oh, well, maybe they're just having a bad day." 
people like to give others the benefit of the doubt. That's our neighbor too. Maybe they're having a rough time. And you drive away and you don't make much of it. A person of color goes into the mini-mart. Same instance, a little bit of uh, friction. Walks out of there thinking, oh, they must have been having a bad day. Or was it my race? So one of the that's a kind of hidden privilege that mm. whites don't have to think about race all the time. Whereas people of color do. This is why parents of color with have to talk to their children. They give the talk, right? Where they say, dress in khakis as I'm dressed today and a plaid shirt. Speak respectfully. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson talks about growing up in uh, I believe in Detroit and having to, when he would go downtown, having to carry identity cards, uh, learn to talk white, act white, think and feel like a white person. The students who come up, who I'm going to be teaching these wonderful students in September at Carthage, uh, they, the white students don't have to adapt to a, an institution that is uh, dominated by um, people of a different race. People of color, and now I think about well, last year, 27% of our entering freshman class at Carthage were students of race uh, identified other than white. Well, they do have that added burden of having to adapt. Well, it is a white privilege not to not only not have to adapt, but to not have to think about it. Hmm. You see, so white privilege is often a kind of um, invisible uh, dimension that's hard to talk about, but nonetheless is as real and has as much currency as the hardness and thickness of this table we're sitting at. <laughs> so these are real. If people define events as real, they are real in their consequences. So white privilege not only has an objective reality, it has a subjective side too. Interesting. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Wayne Thompson, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Carthage College. And I love your phrase about we're unpacking. <laughs> unpacking the invisible knapsack. Right, of right, of, 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 of that and, 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 and some other uh, tricky matters. And, of course, we're, we're speaking about some issues of, of related to, to uh, race relations here in the United States at, at the moment, which seem to be so high, highly charged and trying to, uh, to, to sort out just, uh, just what is, is going on. Let's tackle a little more specifically uh, some of what I, 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 I told you I, I wanted us to, to, to focus on, namely some of these, these groups uh, that have uh, garnered so much attention as of late, uh, particularly groups that we think of as white supremacists, neo-Nazis, that, that, that kind of thing. First of all, and of course, these these are groups that have been around a long time, and uh, it feels like they're surging in popularity. But of course, the possibility is there that what they're doing is surging into the spotlight, but not necessarily yes, surging yes. in numbers. First of all, um, do you have any sense of 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 what the numbers are, and is this something in which it's really difficult to know, or or in fact? Can we know the answer to a question like that? Well, you, um, you presage where, where I'll take this uh, argument or this uh, issue. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a very well-known organization, has been tracking hate groups for a long time. So that's the primary source of, of uh, information and data regarding hate groups uh, that at least is more out in the media. And indeed, hate groups are up. There are more around. But all they do at the Southern Poverty Law Center is count the number of groups. The apex, the highest point 
for these groups was actually in 2011 when President Obama was president uh, uh, during his tenure as president. That is when the hate groups were at their apex. Hmm. So there were uh, about 1,100 uh, such known groups in the United States at that time uh, that could be called hate groups. Uh, white supremacy groups were, of course, prominent in that, but there's also uh, some of the Nation of Islam groups also included in, the, in that. So it wasn't all white supremacist groups. Right now, as of 2016 anyway, the Southern Poverty Law Center claims that there are 917 hate groups in the United States that they were able to identify. So the actual number of hate groups has declined somewhat, but does seem to be on the uptick again. As far as counting the individuals, this is a very difficult, murky area. Uh, it's not something you can easily ask about in a survey. And indeed, the percentage of the population affiliated with such uh, groups, uh, hate groups, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, they often don't make those distinctions or have that kind of self-identity and wouldn't answer in a survey anyway. It's like mm. going into a survey and asking if people are LGBT. Well, the first reaction is, who is this person interviewing me? Why right. do you want to know this? So very difficult to ascertain through surveys. There are a few indicators. There are about 200,000 subscribers to um, known racist publications. Again, Southern Poverty Law Center tracks some of that stuff, and academic studies track uh, as well. <clears throat> the Southern Poverty Law Center estimates that the main Klan groups, and they're really the Ku Klux Klan is several groups, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the main groups um, uh, known as Ku Klux Klan uh, and you put together some of the bigger groups, you get about 8,000 members and 190 chapters. Well, those are only estimates and counts, right? Hmm. If you add in social media and people who, say, go to um, resale shops and purchase Nazi memorabilia, I mean, where do you draw the line? Hmm. <laughs> 63 million people voted for Donald Trump, and he openly uh, embraced uh, uh you know, uh, some white superiority uh, themes in his campaign. Uh, are those people counted uh, as, as members of hate groups? Well, certainly not. You know, many people voted for Donald Trump thinking he was going to get them a job, not because they don't like people of color. Right. So it's really hard to say how we would uh, actually go about counting these groups. We can count the number of groups. By the way, I looked into, uh, in my preparation for our interview, I looked into the situation for Wisconsin, and it turns out that there are nine hate groups uh, active in Wisconsin, one that is headquartered in Milwaukee, and um, the New Order, that's the group headquartered in Milwaukee, hmm. okay? There are um, many groups, uh, the Aryan Nations, uh, the uh, two of the largest groups are the National Socialist Movement, which is clearly neo-Nazi, and the Vanguard America. Uh, now, these groups don't always identify openly as neo-Nazi. So you were asking me, in, as we were preparing for this interview, what's the difference between neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups? And I would say that in terms of content and style and membership, probably not much. One last point I'd like to make about this, uh, uh, this uh, about trying to count to see how big, how many, how how uh, frequent is this kind of membership or involvement, is that uh, many of the folks that are in contact with these movements, or perhaps even in sympathy, are dabbling in them and moving from movement to movement. 
thus as it is in my field of sociology of religion, where it's very hard to count evangelical Protestants because they also have a style of church hopping, right? Mm. So they might be counted on the roles of multiple churches. You have the same problem with uh, insurgent, uh, you know, up-and-coming hate groups because there are people that are moving around from group to group. And it's not there's not an exclusive membership necessarily. Maybe among some of the true believers there is, where yeah. membership in another group would be exclu- exclusive. You would be kicked out. But for the most part, you have what here, here sociologists of religion call an audience cult, right? Audience cults tend to jump around, hop around. And with the advent now and growth in social media, it becomes more possible to do that and very difficult to count. But there are some surveys that do suggest where some of the sympathies may lie, and they're they're disconcerting. The American National Election Study uh, found in a 2016 series of surveys done in early 2016 that 36% of whites find their white identity to be very important or extremely important, 16% very important, 20% extremely important. So uh, if you have a large percentage of whites who I, who for whom their white identity is salient what do we make of that you wonder what are they proud of about being white i'm proud of many heroes and heroes and sheroes in my swedish american past um, but i wonder if there's a dark side to embracing white identity as well so that moves beyond hate groups to a more general sentiments in the population that may be uh, experiences threatening by people of color. Hmm. One of the things I have thought a lot about is that distinction between uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis when it comes to injecting these Nazi themes, these specific Nazi yes. themes, swastikas and so on. I, I have, and, and not, I'm sure you have not, studied this extensively, certainly, but I would be curious if you had a thought on on uh, what the, 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 why that would make sense to somebody who otherwise, I'm sure in many respects, thinks of themselves as a true blue American and yet is willing to identify in this really direct way with something that that whatever you think of it is certainly not American at all. Uh, that's one of the things I find most mystifying well you know it's racism may be as american as apple pie we have a long history with that well that yes but the neo-nazi version though is derived from uh, really from european fascism especially germany in the 1920s through the 1940s and there is of course uh, neo-nazism in germany uh, and other parts of europe uh, now as well so it's not just the united states we have a neo-nazi movements uh, as I said previously, the substantive difference between neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups, there may be more overlap than difference. The difference, of course, is the use of the symbols and um, and uh, some of the language uh, and certainly the emphasis on anti-Semitism that uh, seems to date right back to 1930s Germany. So what is Nazism? Nazism is uh, – Nazism – the the values are racism, anti-Semitism, and glorification of political violence. Those are the the three uh, characteristics that have been identified by historians and, and social scientists. 
to characterize Nazism. The neo-Nazism is in many ways just a reappropriation of those kinds of symbols. Uh, so the use of the term Nazi is uh, often avoided by many of the white supremacist groups, but the aims and identity certainly overlap. Now, so who would join such groups, okay? The most marginal people. There are two things you should keep in mind here. That is people who have lost cultural moorings, who don't seem well uh, integrated into mainstream uh, values of our culture. And one of the values would be uh, value on diversity, value on, on pluralism, um, people who are not integrated into that. So they're, they're marginal in terms of the, the cultural values, but also marginal in terms of participation in mainstream uh, institutions. So the kinds of people attracted to Nazi groups are those that are uh, not only lacking in what Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology, called regulation, which is kind of the mm. inner gyroscope, right? Your sense of values, your sense of, of your identity. But they're also lacking in group ties. So they often are people who are socially isolated. New social movements of all types, religious, political in this case, uh, and social movements, uh, reactionary movements uh, specifically, oftentimes are loners. And the groups know that they're looking for others who are socially isolated. Hmm. So in a sense, uh, some of those images that we maybe form in our minds about who these people are are, are, are largely correct, although uh, sure. it's probably important to acknowledge that amongst their ranks are probably certain people that we might be really surprised at, that, that uh, the, the dental hygienist at the dentist office could conceivably belong to such a group but you're saying it's really quite unlikely that tends not to be the kind of person who is part of these groups. Well, it hasn't been in the past, but what's happened in, in recent years is that the neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups have become more sophisticated in their rec recruiting and in their branding. It's very important now, now among the leaders of neo-Nazi groups to brand them as more mainstream and more acceptable. Having a president who espouses uh, uh, some you know, makes at least utterances that can seem off-putting to people of color and so on, is seen as a champion for their cause. So there is a general feeling and, and attitude and a style of branding going on in white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups that is a, a kind of an attempt to mainstream and to seem more legitimate, to have more kind of a legitimacy, a more currency in the population. So you take one leader as a good example is David Duke, who um, was the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan um, and, uh, back in the 1980s. Now, here's a person with a uh, college degree, wears a suit and tie, uh, talks about uh, white nationalism in softer terms. It's sort of the softer underbelly of the, the way that neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups have been branding themselves very intentionally in order to seem more legitimate and uh, garner a wider audience. Hmm. One of the things I have sensed from some of my f conservative Facebook friends who who are still supporting Donald Trump, even if I, th I think most of them feel some consternation at you know some of the things he has done and said, but but are still believers in the sense of of what he stands for in terms of, for instance, economic policy or foreign policy As or whatever. As are about two in five Americans still right. support much of what Trump stands for. Right. Yeah. But they, I think, feel a, a, an intense discomfort uh, of, of being, in a sense, associated with 
some of these uh, people that, 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 that truly are on the fringe. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting to think about somebody who, who finds themselves in that, in that position. And I suppose somebody on the left could, could conceivably also feel a similar discomfort about the fringe on the left that sometimes engages in violent activities as 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 well but i think it's a more I would acute agree with that, yeah. but it's a more acute situation uh, i should think on the right at least at the moment well and so you wonder what's is the difference really between the the uh the the fringes or the the uh, um, the edges of political and social discourse between the what so-called left and the so-called right well there are there's some co-optation of the techniques i mean the Antifa movement, which is, stands for anti-fascist movement, it's been around since the 1920s. But in its current incarnation, they're dressing up in helmets and taking up sticks. They may not be as well-armed as the, those on the right. But I think that itself shows some of the difference. Social scientists dating back at least to the 1970s have shown a greater sense of urgency and emotion on the part of the right. I guess, uh, Greg, one way to look at this is that when people feel that they're losing something, they perceive that something's being taken away, that is much more arousing in terms of emotions uh, and anger uh, and has more potential to turn violent than for uh, liberals, for the left side, which is kind of embracing what might be, right? So on the one hand, liberals, uh, the extreme left, uh, lacks an inner gyroscope uh, to some extent. They're open to everything, right? <laughs> the world is my oyster, as Jackie Gleason used to say. Whereas on the right, there is this, uh, in the extreme right here I'm talking about, there really is a feeling of loss, of something being taken away. The sense of loss, fear of loss, which is associated with authoritarian values and attraction to authoritarianism, that fear of loss is much more motivating and arousing than... Uh, imagining what might be. Right. And you can see that in the voter turnout is greater for conservatives than for liberals. The feelings of urgency are much greater for conservatives than they are for liberals. Interesting. And I think about some of my more thoughtful conservative Facebook friends uh, who are well-read and, and, and quite thoughtful inf- individuals their fears are, are very much linked to losses caused by what they perceive as losses caused by globalism. And, uh, but, but it's, it's very much w- when, when I listen to them, I sense a very, very potent fear that, 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 that the United States of America as we know it today is headed for oblivion. It's going to be swallowed up in a global government and, what we hold dear is just going to kind of pass into the ether. Uh, and, and it's just interesting to think about somebody, how somebody like that and then somebody on the fringe, how they might cast the same vote, but in a sense for very, on the surface for very different reasons, but in a sense... The, there's an the underlying sort of, commonality. Right, yeah, there's an engine, theme, yeah. engine of motivation which, 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 which they sort of share. Well, your mainstream friends, I'm sure, uh, the mainstream conservatives would not use the same kind of language that some of the extremist groups would use. And that sense of loss is more generally stated for those in the ma- closer to the mainstream, closer to the center. For those that are in the far right-wing fringes, they often talk about uh, Z- Zog, 
which I heard in high school from the guys in Marshfield where I grew up and at the bar still next to me. They would talk about Zog. Well, what is Zog? Zog, well, they'd say, well, Wayne, of course, Zog is Zionist occupation government. Mm. Well, mainstream conservatives aren't going to talk about that, you know, use that, invoke that kind of extreme anti-Semitism in their views and probably would find that uh, repellent, uh, the, you know, the anti-Semitism in it. And yet there is a commonality, a fear of losing privilege, losing status at the expense of people who are uh, often called the undeserving elements, the undeserving poor, for instance, Mm -hmm. that have not worked, that is, that lack merit and uh, talent and hard work and that uh, are earning their privileges unfairly. Of course, the objective reality is that people of color, oftentimes those that are uh, demonized or marginalized by those on the right, uh, are not gaining very fast. And indeed, they stand on the ladder below the working class whites that have been deindustrialized, you know, victims of deindustrialization. I think um, what is different on the right, especially in the extreme right, is not only the sense of victimization, but also a sense of being a warrior, which does have the potential to invoke violence. Mm. And some of what we're talking about makes me think of some of my most uh, liberal friends on Facebook, for instance, and how they also in this moment uh, are very much driven by a sense of fear, a fear of loss. But in, in this case, not so much a fear of their own lives, something being lost, but a sense of the United States uh, losing its stature uh, or, or our losing our moral integrity, our moral standing among uh, other nations of the world. And, uh, and there is, in some ways, there's a sense of, of, of people on the left maybe also feeling emboldened in this moment and galvanized in a way that is maybe closer in a visceral sense to what you were just describing uh, on the right. Do you think there's some truth to that? I think there is. And I often see this in, in religion as well. The loudest voices are those on the extremes. And so we tend to th- think that because they're uh, framing, the, the more strident voices are framing debate, framing issues, we forget about this vast, undistributed middle there. Uh, there is a range there, of course, from left to right. But I think the voices of those in the middle, and I'm not necessarily arguing here at all for, uh, for you know, moderate voices shall, um, uh, shall, uh, should uh, prevail. However, I think that the voices of the moderate middle, middle America, lie somewhere between the extremes and often do not find a voice. It doesn't make good TV hmm. or radio, and therefore it's easier to talk about the extremes and forget about the 60% of Americans that are somewhat in the middle on these issues. So yes, indeed, the left and the right both feel a sense of decline of America's stature, and they all, each of them feel that, that the United States and our history, we have a lot to offer the world. When the French diplomat Lexi de Tocqueville visited the U.S. in the 1830s. He captured that sense that Americans have a, they have a lot to offer, okay? They had that the old world of nobility and uh, ascription that is being born into privilege and so on, that that old world was disappearing. And in America, in the, the shores of this distant land, 
that there was an equal opportunity for everybody to be represented. And I think that is very, still very widely shared uh, among Americans, that, that feeling of uh, that we have a good product on the shelf that will get people's clothes clean, <laughs> democratic institutions, right? But there is a feeling among the left and the right that our institutions are under assault at this point and uh, concern that that the America's voice uh, in as far as it's a positive voice for the rest of the world uh, and our also our strength uh, and our military might as well that that will uh, decline and that the United States will no longer have that voice so there is this pervasive sense of decline on the left and the right hmm. and on that note of <laughs> Of fear, <laughs> we need to draw this uh, con- uh, this conversation to a close. But I'm so grateful to you, uh, uh, Professor Thompson, for shedding some light on some really vexing and complicated issues. And I know we have more conversations we need to have from this point on. But I certainly thank you for this one, Dr. Wayne Thompson, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Carthage. Thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Greg. <laughs>